If you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 13. And we're going to look at verses 20 and 21 this morning. I had intentions of finishing the rest of the book to 25, but as I was studying, there's just so much truth here in 20 and 21. I felt, let's just look at that, and then, Lord willing, I stress Lord willing, we will finish the book of Hebrews next Sunday, 22 through 25. I love these two verses. Like I said, I just want to look at these two and break them down phrase by phrase. There's so much truth here in these two verses. I'm calling this message, A Pastor's Prayer for His Church. The reason for that is I believe that it was a pastor that most likely wrote this letter. And he's writing to his church. And we've been through that before about the reasons for that and what they're going through. But here's what I want to say, though, at the end of this letter. I think what we see here is this beautiful expression of a church leader's heart for his own people. And I want to look at it in that context. That you have here a pastor, a church leader, saying, I want to express a prayer of concern for my people, for my church. This prayer is simply this. He, I'll give you the answer, and we're going to talk about it in the message. But he simply asked this prayer. May God equip them, his church. He's so saying to them, may God equip you with every good thing to do his will. It's a simple prayer, but it's profound. May God equip you to do his will. That's it. The main verb is equip you, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. And he says, well, what is God equipping you, his children, to do? To do his will. But again, I'm stressing that is his prayer for his people, that God would work in such a way in the church people's lives that they're equipped to do God's will. Now, in verses 18 through 19, it's interesting because he basically asks of the church that they pray for him and the other spiritual leaders. He says quickly, pray for us that we are sure to have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorable in all things. So in 18 and 19, it's, hey church, I need you to pray for your spiritual leaders. Pray for us. And we talked about that last week. Now I believe he's shifted and says, but let me set an example for you, church, and pray for you. Here's what I desire for my church, he's saying. I want to examine that prayer. It's my prayer For myself, and it is my prayer as your pastor specifically for you as well, just to mimic what he would ask of his people. It is a prayer that God would equip me to do his will so that as your pastor, you can be equipped to do his will too. And it is my prayer for you that in all areas of your life, God will equip you to do his will. The ending here in Hebrews that we're coming to, I think it's really neat what he's done i actually think in each of these phrases we'll look at it's like he's summarizing the entire letter in this short two verse prayer he's going not going through everything but he's kind of summarizing the importance of jesus and what god will do with someone through jesus christ it's a very fitting ending loaded with all kinds of truth if you would stand with me as i read just these two verses we'll pray and see what god has for us to learn this morning hebrews 13 20 21 reads Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now let's pray for a moment. Father, thank you for the gift of Christ that we're going to talk about here this morning. Thank you that 
as we will see, you have given resources for us to be equipped to do your will. And I pray that through this passage, you would help open our minds and hearts to learn what we need to hear from your word, Lord, about the gifts you've given us, the resources at your disposal so that we can leave here today and go accomplish your will all for the glory of Jesus. Thank you again for this country, Lord, with the many moral failures that we have in our country. Nonetheless, I am grateful to be in this country and thank you for the freedoms we enjoy. Thank you that our country honors this group of veterans that have served to to fight in wars or simply simply to just make the military go and operate so that we can be a force that defends freedom. And I now ask that you be with us as we go through this message. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. So again, let's look at this as a prayer and then ask ourselves, what, well, what is there for us to get from this though? Let's start with this. Here's the prayers. Let's just look at this idea of the prayer itself. What is he praying for? And it is simply his prayer. The point of the whole prayer is that God will equip his children. That's it. That God will equip his people. We'll talk about that as we go. That is in this phrase. If you skip to verse 21, out of these two verses, grammatically, the phrase in verse 21, equip you, that is actually the main verb. That's the thrust of this whole thing. So that's where I'm getting this idea. We're looking at this as a prayer that he wants God to equip us to do something. So he says here, the prayer is equip you with everything good that you may do his will. So this is his desire as their spiritual leader, as their pastor, that God would do this for them. It's the pastor's prayer for his people that God would equip the people of God to do what God would have them to do. The word equip simply means to prepare, to be put in order or to arrange a person for a task. So you could think of military, you know, thinking of veterans. You have the soldier has to be equipped, they have to be trained, they have to be given gear, weapons and gear and everything they need to go accomplish the mission. In a similar way, he's saying, hey, church, God has given you a calling, a charge and a mission and you need to go do it. But my prayer is that he gives you all the necessary tools and equipment to go do what he's got for you to do. That is the prayer. Now, here's the point, though, for this message I want us to think about. Let's take that idea. It's a pastor to his church people. But let's turn it to ourselves and say something like this. This prayer that he has for his people should be a prayer that each of us individually, whether you're a pastor or not, whether you have a church or not, the prayer should be for each of us individual Christians to say, God, if this is the prayer that a pastor has for his people, that means it's very, very important. So we should say something like this. OK, God, as we walk through this this morning, help me understand then what you want me to do and what you're going to do to equip me to do what you want me to do. That's the idea. We need this as much as a pastor needs to pray it for his church. So let's look at the resources then God has to equip his children. If the charge is he wants to equip you to do something, then what's he going to give you to do it? Well, in verse 20, we'll back up to there now. Here's the resources God has to equip his children. What I'm going to do is we're going to break down these little phrases, and each of these is going to kind of be a resource that God will give you to equip you to do his will. They're descriptions, so to speak. Well, in verse 20, he begins with, May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. Let's just stop there. The first phrase to focus on is God of peace. That's the first resource. 
let's just call it peace. So the first resource that he says that he's praying over these people that we should pray for personally as a child of God, God, I need peace. But again, it's a promise that he'll give it to you, though. God's resource he gives his people to do his will starts with his peace. The word peace, you probably have heard the Hebrew word shalom. It's the same idea in the Greek. It's this concept of no conflict, no struggle. There's no turmoil. When there's peace, that means hostilities have ceased. There, there's calm. That's this idea. And here he's saying the God of peace. I find that very interesting. He doesn't say, I pray that God give you peace. We'll get to that. He is. But how he's saying God can give you peace starts with the fact that he says God is peace. He is a God of peace. And because he's a God of peace, he can give you peace. He uses a description here to remind the church that this world, everything around you can be going crazy. Stuff can be crazy in your life. People can be crazy. There's craziness everywhere. There's turmoil everywhere. And yet here, though, he starts with, but think about this fact, dear Christian. You serve a God of peace. He is peace. He has peace. And he gives out peace. Again, remember what peace means. It means no conflict, no turmoil. There's calm. There's a comfort in this kind of peace. God is peace. And he will give you peace in your soul is his point. That's the resource. God is not just a God of peace. He's the source of peace and the giver of peace. I have a typo there. It should say giver. But I want you to think of it that way. God is peace. He's the source of peace and he's the giver of peace. It all starts with God and only the peace that he can give. But why do we need this peace of God to do his will? Why, is, why does he list peace as a necessary resource that you and I need to accomplish the will of God. Again, because I believe in their context, historically, they were under different levels of persecution. Maybe physical persecution, emotional, societal, financial persecution. They have lost family and friends because they would dare claim Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There's a lot of conflict and turmoil in their lives. And I think he's using that to say, let me remind you that despite all of that stuff going on that's chaos in your world, you serve a God of peace. There's calmness there. And he can give that to you. Like the song that Bruce and them sang, there was this phrase, I'm probably butchering it, but it said something like a peace so unexplainable, I can't understand it. It's exactly what he's saying. God offers a peace unlike anything in this world. You can think about the Israel-Hamas situation right now, and I hear in the news that Israel has agreed to these four-hour increments of a ceasefire so that humanitarian aid can come in. I hear these commentators on the news, they'll say things like, there's a peaceful ceasefire. Whenever I hear that, I think that's actually an oxymoron. There's no such thing as a peaceful ceasefire. You either have peace or you don't. A ceasefire is simply a pause in the battle. That is not what he's saying here when you hear peace in the news, maybe. He is saying, imagine that there is never any conflict. Not even the possibility of conflict. Why? Because God's peace is sort of preventing all this conflict from even happening. But he says he can do that from within your soul. So I'm stressing this idea of peace. I think it's so critical for us. Because you can look at what's going on in the Middle East. You can look at what's going on here in America. You can look at what's going on in your own home, maybe. And you could say, 
I live in a world of utter chaos. I have chaos in my family, chaos in my marriage, chaos at work, chaos when I listen to the news. It's everywhere. It is everywhere, and I don't need to prove that to you. But think of this. He says, though, at the end of the day, no matter what you have going on that is chaotic, that you think there's just absolutely no solution to this, with that simple phrase, though, he says there is, and the solution is to trust in God. Why? Because he is peace, and he'll give you peace. Now, let me be clear, that doesn't mean that your situation of conflict and turmoil may immediately stop tomorrow. That's not what he's saying necessarily. What he is saying, though, that he was saying to these people, is even if you're facing something that just seems chaotic, no solution, these people facing persecution, he's saying, though, to them, but you can have inside your soul an inner peace to calm you. Why do you need peace to be calm in a chaotic situation? Again, think of the military. I've never served, but as I have watched documentaries and understand how this works, to survive in combat, you need to be calm a little bit. But combat is not calm. It is chaotic by its very nature. But yet to survive and to do what you need to do, you have to stay calm and focused to get through the combat and accomplish the mission. It's a similar situation here, living the life of a Christian on earth. There's chaos, there's this sort of spiritual combat going on, there's emotional combat, there's all this stuff flying around you. And he says, but if you can be inside yourself, guided by God's peace, let God work within you a calming peace, even though chaos is still happening around you, you're able to walk through it because you're walking with peace of God. You can see the conflict and say, this is not good, but you know what? God is with me. I'm guided by this peace I don't even understand, so I can walk right through it and be okay. That's why I think he starts there. The first resource you need to do God's will is you will need the peace of God working within you just to simply survive the chaos of this life. But once you have that, you can now be better guided to walk through the chaos and get through it, survive it. Again, the song said, peace unexplainable but we need it we depend on it god is the source and the giver of peace that's the first resource he gives us is peace the next resource he gives us to do his will is let's call this the shepherd the second resource is he gives us a shepherd in hebrews thirteen twenty. now may the god of peace who brought again from the dead our lord jesus and focus on this phrase the great shepherd of the sheep so he gives us this figure here it's jesus but we'll talk about that in a second but he just says i'm giving you a shepherd a great shepherd of the sheep that's your second resource he's brought again from the dead though he says this great shepherd of the sheep brought again means literally he's brought him back up again he's restored him back from the dead the shepherd of the sheep now this is a great resource for us to focus on because this resource is not a thing it's a person So God says, I've given you peace to guide you, to comfort you, to sort of calm you, to get through it. But now I've given you a person, not a concept or a thing, a person. Who's this person? The shepherd. And not only is this any shepherd, this person, this shepherd has been killed. They've died. But God says, but I've brought them back up from the dead to serve you as your shepherd. What what is so special about this shepherd that he's been brought back from the dead here? Well, now think about this point for a moment. If God can bring back this person from the dead and then give him to you as a resource to serve you and guide you, what does that say about the kind of power God must have? 
God must have all power. Because as humans, our human existence in this world is marked by death. Everything dies eventually. Your pets, the body, plants, things die. All biological life has an end to it. And I think as humans, human nature then says, well, that must mean death is it. Period, end of story, that's final. End of the book, end of everything. Once death has occurred, it's over, that's it. But here he says that's actually not true. Because imagine a powerful being that has so much power that this being can look at a biological life die and say, but I have the power to bring it back to life. Well, what does that mean? It means death is not it. Death is not final. And what does it say about this being? They have power beyond our comprehension to restore back dead life again. We're not talking here when someone flatlines on the operating table and CPR and the defibrillators bring them back. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking dead, dead for days, funerals being prepared, everything's done and over with, and yet still can be brought back to life. That's the kind of power he's saying God has. He can undo death itself. We serve a God who is peace. He can give you peace. And here we see he is a God that has power over the greatest thing we can think of that stops everything in our lives, which is death. But yet, he has power over that. Again, I think that you would agree with me. Pretend for a moment you don't know about eternal life. If you don't know about eternal life, then you're going to be thinking death is it. That's why many people in life, you may have seen them, see them on TV all the time, they'll have the phrase, you only live once. Get all you can out of this life because you only have one life and you only live once, so get all you can out of it. That's actually not true. He says here, that one life that you think you have here in this life, yes, it will biologically, physically come to an end, but you serve a God that brings that back to life. Meaning, you don't only have one life to live. You have an eternal life yet to come, so live this life for the eternal life yet to come. And you serve a God with that kind of power. He has all power, limitless power, to overcome even death. Part of our fear, again, I think, from stepping out and doing what God has called us to do, you may have sensed in your soul, I think God wants me to do this or do that or go talk to this person and say that. But there's this fear that holds you back. I think part of the reasons we don't fully step out and do what we think God is leading us to do is we have this illogical fear that, but it just won't work. Well, why will it not work? Well, either, either one, because I just don't think God can use me, or two, I might not say this, but deep down I'm really thinking I believe God has power, but I just don't think he can actually work through me to do the thing I think he's calling me to do. But here he says, if God has power to raise back life from the dead, he has the power to work in you to do anything he's called you to do. It's a matter of trust. That's it. That's why I think he lists this here as a resource given to us to be equipped to do God's will. He's given us a shepherd that not just a shepherd that he says, here, I've given you this guy to help you. Oh, but by the way, this guy has died, but I've raised him back from the dead. And it's meant to be proof to us that, okay, well, God has unlimited power then, so he can do what he says he can do through me, because he has that kind of power. And he's given me someone very, very special here. 
because they didn't stay dead. Well, he identifies who this shepherd is. He says, our Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. John 10, it's a little long, but I want to read this passage to you in John 10, starting in verse 7. Jesus identifies himself as the great shepherd from the Lord. He says, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Think of the sheep as God's people. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, notice he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus says, I'm the door like the gate to a pen of sheep. The sheep are God's people. They're on the inside. Jesus says, I'm, I'm a gate, a swinging gate door. But think of it more. He's basically saying, I guard the entrance into God's flock of sheep. Only those who go through the doorway of Jesus are allowed entrance into God's sheepfold, the family of God. Then he goes on, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Notice verse 11 now. This is Jesus talking. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So Jesus gives this analogy of, I'm a good shepherd, but I'm not a hired hand working the flock. A hired hand sees the wolf pack coming to eat the sheep and say, you know what, they're not even my sheep and he pays me minimum wage, so I'm out of here. I'm not even going to have that fight. Jesus says, that's not who I am. I am the sheep. This is my flock. I will die for the sheep. I won't run away from them. Verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. I believe what Jesus was saying there was he was talking to Jews he was saying there's another sheepfold, that's the Gentiles. He was saying, I'm going to die, rise again, and God's going to call all people, Jew and Gentile alike, into one flock of sheep. Only through Christ, though. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus kind of explains there what Hebrews is saying here to us. Who, who has God given us as a resource to be equipped to do his will? A shepherd. Which shepherd? Jesus Christ. And what kind of a shepherd did he say he was? He can lay down his life for his sheep, die for them, yet his life be restored back again. He protects the sheep. He guards the sheep. He dies for the sheep if need be. He has died for the sheep. So that is the resource God has given us. He's given us Jesus Christ. Now this is the point though. We don't just have Jesus for salvation. I think sometimes as Christians we say, yes, yes, I, I get this. I, I know about Jesus. He died for my sins and forgiven by faith in him. And on and on it goes. But don't get caught up in the point of Jesus was to forgive you sometime in the past. For you to pray a prayer, be baptized and all those things which are you know, significant. But that's not it. He's not saying that God gave you Jesus just to die for your sins so you can be forgiven and go to heaven. No, the point here is he has given you Jesus as a guide to do God's will for the rest of your life until you get to heaven. Well, then that means Jesus is a resource not just for your salvation. He is a resource for your daily life on earth, how to live for God and do God's will. That means looking at what Jesus said and did and how he lived for God 
And we do the same. He's the resource. He's a guide. He's our protector, our shepherd. But see Jesus as a resource, as a guide for your life to do God's will. God's given him to you and proven he has all power to work through you to do anything he's called you to do because he raised Jesus from the dead. The next gift that a resource we could say that God's given us is eternal salvation. God has provided through our great shepherd Jesus eternal salvation. Back in Hebrews 13:20, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep. And then there's this phrase by the blood of the eternal covenant. By the blood of the eternal covenant. Jesus's death on the cross was payment for sins. Either people pay for sins or someone else could pay. Well, a sinner cannot pay for another sinner's sins. But a perfect person who never sinned, now they could pay for a sinner's sins. And that's where Jesus comes in. He came, he lived a perfect life, and God said to Jesus, if you will go do this, suffer brutally under the hands of godless people, die according to their laws like a criminal, dying on that cross, suffering capital punishment, God says what's really happening behind the scenes spiritually is I'm laying the sins of people on Jesus while on that cross. He's dying for those sins, paying the price for those sins. And then God says in return, when someone puts their faith in in Jesus doing that for them, God then takes Jesus' righteousness, His perfection, sinlessness, and there's a transaction. He takes the guilty sinner, places their guilt and sin on Jesus, so He dies and suffers for that in their place. He takes Jesus' perfection and righteousness and places it on the guilty, filthy sinner. So there's a swap. We get Jesus' perfection and righteousness not because we earned it. God gives it to us. It's like a bank account. You, you had a million dollar deficit and you can never work your way out. And God says, I will put a surplus now in your bank account based on my riches, not your own. And I'll take your debt and put it on my son and he'll pay your debt for you. There's a swap. Well, he says with that phrase, how did Jesus do that though? He died. He had to die and shed his blood to bring about the forgiveness of those sins. And he calls it this covenant. God made a new covenant with people through the death of his son, Jesus. What really happened is when Jesus died on that cross physically, something spiritually was happening. Behind the scenes, spiritually, Jesus was going into the heavenly tabernacle and he was taking his blood and he was purifying a path for sinners to go all the way to the throne of God in the Holy of Holies. Hebrews 9.11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, meaning the heavenly tabernacle, verse 12, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood. And what did he do? He secured eternal redemption. That's what Hebrews 1320 is saying to us is by the blood of the eternal covenant Jesus did these things this instituted the new covenant between God and people this new covenant is eternal it never stops and it forgives sins past present and future for all eternity once Jesus made this purification of sins by offering his own blood then God three days later raised him back to life again Again, proof that God has all power and also proof that Jesus could say, I did it. Mission accomplished. I have done what I came to do. I've died for your sins and I have paved a path with my blood for you to get to God. 
go straight to the Holy of Holies one day in the heavenly tabernacle. So the point is this, because God raised Jesus up from the dead and gave him to us as our great shepherd, you can have confidence that Jesus has paid for your sins in full now and forevermore. How does that help you, though, do God's will? It's a great resource to know that you can serve God and do his will the whole time in your life and be guided mentally by this thought that even when I fail, God still loves me. Even when I fall down, God will pick me up. Even when I don't fully do the things I know to do as one of his children, I have the blood of Jesus still forgiving my sins in front of me. Now, that's not an excuse to sin. That's a motivation to keep serving the Lord more faithfully. To know that he, God is not like our earthly parents may have been. And when we did wrong, they disciplined us, but they disciplined us out of, we embarrassed them. And they were angry with us. So then we sort of get scared at times to do anything wrong around them. So what causes what that does is it makes the child not even want to maybe be around the parent or they don't want to do things around the parent because they're afraid if I mess up, mom or dad's really going to come down on me. He says here, that's not how God works. Yes, God disciplines like a loving heavenly father. But God's discipline is always to correct the things that need correcting for our good to grow us to be more holy. And he says here, that should be a resource to your mind. So when you live your life to serve God's will, you can have confidence. God's never abandoning me. God is always going to forgive me. So I'll passionately and faithfully serve him, knowing that even if I fail and make mistakes, he's forgiven me. I'm spurred on with that confidence. Rather, think of it the other way. If he said, hey, if you sin a hundred times in your life, God won't forgive you anymore. What if the Bible said that? Well, now what I'm going to do, maybe I'm speaking for myself, I'm less likely to serve the Lord because I'm going to be afraid. What if I sin that 100th time and then it's over? He says, no, that's not how God works. It's an eternal salvation bought by the blood of Jesus. And that should be considered a resource to us to do his will. The next thing let's look at the purpose for God's equipping us. Why does God give you resources to equip you to do what he wants you to do? What's the purpose here? So let's ask this question. What does God want us to do? Why does he equip us at all? That comes in verse 21 now. He says, let me kind of paraphrase verse 20 then. He's basically saying, I pray for you that God will equip you. Verse 21, equip you for what? Equip you with every good thing that, so here's the purpose, that you may do his will. That's the point. Why does God give you resources and equip you? So you will go and do his will in this life now, before you get to heaven then. I mean, remember, in heaven, there's no real living of the life to do the will of God. In heaven, you're in heaven. You, you've arrived. You're glorified. You're in eternal reward. You'll worship God. And heaven is just enjoyment. Enjoyment of God's presence. That's what heaven is. But before heaven, there's work to be done. The work is to serve the Lord and do His will. So he says, the purpose for God equipping you is to do His will that you may do his will. That means to carry out, to perform God's will. Not my will, not your will, his will. The word will means God's wishes, his desires, God's purposes. So God's plan for you as his child is that you and I be focused on not what we want out of life, but what God wants to do through us for him with our lives. There's a big difference. One is more selfish driven. 
I'm about what I think I should be doing, what I'm interested in, what I love to do. The other side says, let's take your loves and passions and desires, but can you use them for the Lord? Can you say, I have these desires and things I'm good at, but instead of using them for myself, what if I could use them for the Lord? What does God want me to do through these things? He wants you to do His will through all areas of your life. That means in your family, your relationships, dating, married, friendships. That means jobs you have, places you go, schools you go to. Any area, there's no exception to a category of your life where you cannot say, I don't think God cares that I do His will in this part of my life. It doesn't exist. Well, the question would be, how do I know, though, what God wants me to do? What, what is God's will for my life then? God, let me answer this real quickly. I've studied this a lot because years and years I used to pour over, what does God want me to do with my life? Why am I here? What's my purpose? I'm talking specifically. You may have thought the same. Like, what, what does God really want me to do, though? Like, where am I supposed to go to school? Who am I supposed to marry? What career am I supposed to go into? Maybe in retirement, it's still I'm still here, but what, what does God want for me to do next in this chapter of my life? It's actually a simple answer. How could you know God's will and do it like Hebrews is saying? I think it comes down to three things. What does your time, your talents, and your finances permit you to do? What does your time, what do you have the time that you can afford to do that doesn't rob your family, for example, from things that you know you should be doing with them or your employer and so on? So what time do you have allotted to you what gifts and talents do you think God has blessed you with? What are you good at? And then add to that, I think finances are involved a little bit. What resources then materially has God sort of put in your life right now? And you add those three up and you can say, if I feel that God might be leading me to do A, B, or C, then which of these do I believe God's gifted me to do? He's allotted me the time in my life right now to go do it. And he's put the resources in my life for me to go into that. Then I would simply say, then go do it. There's your answer. Whatever God has called you to do, he'll equip you to do. But I think specifically he equips through his providence. Providence means situation in life God's put you in. Doors he's opened and doors he's closed. God will guide you along the way. The point is you and I just need to go do something. John Piper has an analogy he gives that God will show you his will for your life individually, like what you should be going, where you should be doing, what's the next chapter. He'll show you those things once you start moving forward. Just do something. You know what God would have you do. Just start doing the little things, and along the way, God will move you to the bigger things. The analogy he gives is a ship in, with sails. He says God will move a ship where he wants it to go, but... God prefers to move a ship that has already left the harbor and has set sail. A ship still in the harbor, God says, I want you to get out of the harbor. Once you're out of the harbor and in the ocean, I'll start moving you. The point is simply this. Just get moving. Just get going. Start doing what you know God's called you to do, even in the little things. God will take care of the rest. He'll start moving. Trusting along the way, we trust that He's equipped us. He'll give us those resources, the peace the Savior Himself, the Shepherd, to guide you along the way and knowing that even if you mess up on the way, He's always going to forgive you. It's an eternal salvation, remember. But I think that's His stressing point for us here is God's equipping you to do His will. God wants you and I 
to first ask ourselves, should I go into this career? Maybe, but will that career permit you to faithfully serve the Lord? If the answer is yes, go for it. Does God want me to date or marry this person? Maybe. Does that person share your values, your Christian values? Do they equally promote you towards godliness rather than take you away? If both of you are moving in the same direction toward God and they're a godly person, then sure, why not? Maybe someone else could say, well, I don't know what to do with the next chapter in my life. Just search your soul. What do you kind of feel inside that God is moving within you to do? Then just start taking steps towards that and trust that on the way God's going to keep moving you along where he needs you. Just go for it. So again, it's all about God's will, though, not our own. And then finally, let's look at how does God equip his children, though? How does God actually do all this? How does he bring it all together, giving you the resources, equipping you to do his will? How does he make it work, though? That's his final point in the verse. Look at verse 21 again. God will equip you with everything good that you may do his will. And here's how he answers that. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. This phrase, working in us, is how God does it. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. There's an irony here in the Greek language this was written in. In the Greek language above where it says, God will equip you with everything good that you may do that word that you may do his will, it is the same Greek word in the next phrase that God works within you. I think he's being intentional to say this. You're working to serve God and do his will. And in the same way, God is working in you to do his will. The two go together. You work, do his will, knowing, but through the inside of me out, God has already been working in me to do his will. We work to do God's will while God works within us, equipping us to do his will. How does God do this equipping, though? He he answers and says, through Jesus Christ. A person cannot do God's will, live their life pleasing to God, if they are not in Jesus Christ. It's impossible. It's impossible to please God without Christ. Only through Jesus Christ does God work within a person to equip them to do his will. A person must, by faith, repent of their sins and believe that Jesus died for their sins on the cross and that God raised him again from the third day. After that, that person is then indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God. And from within your soul, from the inside out, then God begins to do this stuff. He works within you, inside out, through Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit, to equip you to do the things he's called you to do. Some examples of this that Paul speaks of, Philippians 2.12 He says, therefore, my beloved, as you always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling in the point in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul says, do your job as a Christian, live this spiritual life, knowing that what's really happening behind the scenes is God is in you working in you to bring about his will through your life. It's both go together. You and, you and God, you're doing the work, but really God is doing the work through you. The greater one I like to share is 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says, but, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So notice that he says, it's only by God's grace what he's just given me that I am who I am. And God's grace toward me was not in vain. 
But notice the next part of the verse. It's almost like Paul is a little hypocritical here. He's not being hypocritical, but it's just an interesting thing to look at. He says, on the one hand, I am who I am only by the grace of God. God's given me and made me who I am. But now look, he says, on the other hand, I worked harder than any of them, meaning the rest of the apostles. So Paul says, I worked and I worked hard, but it was only by God's grace that I am what I am. Well, what is it, Paul? Did God make you who you are or did you work hard and that's why you are who you are? Paul says, well, it's a little bit of both. Look at the rest. It was not I really working. It was the grace of God in me working. So Paul says, here's how this works. We do things. We take actions to please God and do his will. But really what's happening behind the scenes, it's God's grace working in you and through you to really be able to even do God's will with your life. God will always work within you for this purpose. The last phrase of the verse is, he says, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever, meaning to Jesus, be glory forever and ever. So I'll end on that this point. All of that we've said, he says in Hebrews, why then? What's God's motive for doing all this in us? It's for our good, but that's actually not the primary motive. The primary motive that God will equip you to do things through your life for his will comes down to this, so that Jesus Christ will be glorified. That's really it. All glory will go to Jesus. Paul could say, I am what I am by the grace of God. I worked hard. Make no mistake about it. From a human level, I worked hard. But I worked hard trusting God was working through me. And the point and the purpose of it all was so that I could point people to Jesus. So Jesus would be glorified. That is the motive God will have for always working through you. Now, the, the interesting thing is, if you will keep that focus in your mind that I'm here to glorify Jesus with everything I do, then along the way, your life will find satisfaction and joy and peace. See, the world would teach us, you need to focus on yourself. Do what makes you happy. Do what brings you fulfillment. Then you'll be okay. But the Bible says it's actually backwards. Focus on what makes God happy, what brings Jesus glory. Do those things. Then along the way, God will make you happy and fulfilled. But only while you're working to please him. Remember, all of these uh, gifts, the resources, God gives them to us to equip us to do his will. And it's only through Jesus Christ, though. I'll have a moment of prayer. And as I do, Bruce and them will come. And that's my prayer for you, church, is that God equips you to do his will. And my other prayer is that this morning, as, as Bruce and them come, would you ask God, say, God, I need to make sure I'm in Christ. I've been forgiven. And if so, then God, what areas of my life am I not really stepping out there? And I know I should, but for one reason or another, I just maybe haven't trusted or I've doubted. Don't. Maybe this morning say, God, would you push me, challenge me in these areas to go do your will that I know you've called me to. Trusting those resources will come and he'll work through you. Remember, it's not dependent on you or me for success. It's really dependent on God. God just wants you to be obedient and he'll do the rest. Would you stand with me? And I'll pray and Bruce and then we'll come. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for this blood of the eternal covenant that forgives our sins past, present, and future. But not only forgives us, you call us and you give us new life right now in this earthly life to live for you. Lord, would you guide our thoughts and minds, search our souls right now,
that before we leave here, we can be convicted of areas of our life where we haven't fully given them over to you. We haven't fully sought to please you in those areas. We haven't sought to focus on your will versus our own first. Lord, would you remind us that doing your will as the priority of our life will ultimately lead to our own fulfillment and joy. Because it's only in you can we find lasting joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.